Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive in June. Olive in June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hi lads, thanks for tuning into the podcast again. Don't forget to like and subscribe and head over to the Patreon to contribute and help us out. Thanks a million and enjoy the podcast. Hello everybody, welcome back to the Tone Onyx podcast. I'm your host James and I'm joined by my good friend Timmy Long. Hi everyone. How are you Tim? I'm very well. And yeah. it's slashing rain in here up yeah. Church Street today. I got caught in the rain there, we'll go. I spent four hours on a roof in the rain and uh, I feel... Very grateful that I'm still up there, to be honest. Oh, yeah. I'm just back from Limerick. I was driving down, from, I was up in a, a coal mine, Limerick, up with my uh, Midwest colleagues, so uh, just back from there. Uh, Rowan is on the deck, so how are you, Rowan? Hi, Rowan. Hi, Rowan, how are you, bye? <laughs> uh, and we have a guest from Dublin, um, Lizzie Shorthall, who is a former social worker, mindfulness teacher, author, among other things. So how are you, Lizzie? Hi guys, thanks for having me. Thanks for coming down. We've been in uh, contact for a while now. Mm-hmm. Initially, you watched the podcast and then you were talking to me about a, a book you were writing. And then as we got chatting, I was thinking like, you know, this woman is a good woman for the podcast. Mm-hmm. So I know a little bit about you. Um, but for the people that don't know you, do you want to tell us about who you are and where you're from? Yeah, sure. I'm Lizzie Shortall and as you said there, I'm a dub, but I'm living down in Kilkenny now the last five years with my husband and my two little girls. And as you said there, I'm a former social worker mm. and now I teach creative writing and mindfulness and I just had my first book published. Congratulations. Mm-hmm. And a very good book it is. And we'll give away a copy and all today. Brilliant. Thank but, you. Um, so do you want to tell us, I suppose, about uh, growing up where you grew up in Dublin yeah, sure, sure. Um, so I grew up in North Dublin, so I'm a Northsider as well. Um, North Dublin, place called Rohini, a lovely place actually. Um, just kind of middle of the road uh, sort of place uh, with my two brothers and my two sisters and my parents. Um, went to school there and then after school did a, a PLC course in Whitehall in health and community work. Mm. And went off working in disability services then for years after that. She was in social care for a long time. Yeah, yeah, I was. I kind of fell into it. I did um, I did a placement with people with disabilities when I was doing the PLC course. Mm. And they offered me work there and I ended up staying there for years. Um, but I always loved bringing in the creative stuff. I used to do mindfulness with people with disabilities and mm. art and things like that. Um, so... Down the road, I got more and more into it, yeah. Mm. Whilst the, like, it's not easy working with people with disabilities. Mm. It's more like a vocation, a calling, you know, a certain personality. We always kind of into that kind of caring kind of roles. Yeah, I think so. I think so. I loved it. Like, I, I liked, you know, they used to call us house parents. And um, I had my kids a little bit older, you know, at 36 and 38 when I had my two kids. Mm. So I was in my, my 20s and um, I kind of liked being a, a bit of a mammy. Like, mm. you know, I worked with children with disabilities and that as well. And um, 
I also was in the education side of it then later on as well with teenagers and it was lovely. They actually taught me a lot, you know, they used to talk about, um, talk about our ability and not our disability. And, you know, they really opened my eyes to a lot of things and to services, um, which really led me wanting to get into social work because I wanted to get involved in the delivery of better services Mm. for people. Um, so really they taught me an awful lot, yeah. And you're in recovery, aren't you? I am indeed, yeah. Do you want to tell us a little bit about, um, I suppose, before recovery, the, the drinking, maybe what that was yeah. like? Yeah, yeah. Um, so let's say I'm seven years now in recovery. Congratulations. Um, thanks yeah. a million. And for me, I'm, I would have started... Drinking around age 14, um, stealing a few cans of Ritz, yeah. <laughs> which probably doesn't even exist yeah. anymore. Ritz, yeah. <laughs> it was actually nice, I, never, it? I actually <laughs> never liked this. I, I, got, I got a really bad turn off of cider or anything that tastes like cider when I was about 13. Um, I got all over the number two <laughs> bus in the back and I swore on that yeah. That I would never touch anything that tastes like cider. And I mean this no right. I've been in conditions like coming on <clears> of <throat> all forms of drugs. And there's been bottles of wine there. And I would not touch them like for the fear <laughs> of going back to that mm. moment, you know. But there's yeah. nothing worse to you know when you're about 13, 14. You're drinking cider next you get the spinners or something. Oh, and yeah. It, oh, it's a horrible feeling, isn't it? Yeah, it <laughs> is. It is. And that's the way it started. And that's the way it went on. You know, I thought that was getting drunk, you know, spinning and blacking out and not being well. And um, I pretty much did that then for the next 20 years at weekends Mm -hmm. or went off on trips. I went to Australia for a year and it was one big party, you know, for the year or went off to Thailand a few times for a few weeks. And um, every time I went somewhere, I thought I was off on an adventure, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, but it wasn't until my brother passed away and I tried to stop that I realized it was a problem you know um that I found it hard to stop you know um, Do you want to tell us a little bit about your brother yeah um so really Lair my older brother he actually inspired my novel that we'll talk about <laughs> later um so some of the story is based on him and um how he passed away so Lair was my big brother he was six years older than me and we were very close um he was a great guy Super kind, gentle, clever, sensitive guy. Um, and to cut a long story short, I suppose, he went off to Thailand when he was pretty young. Uh, or not Thailand, um, Amsterdam. And he came back with drug-induced psychosis. Mm. And at the time he was treated for it, he was in his early 20s and we thought he was fine. Um, but many, many years later, it came back to bite him really mm. and he ended up with mental health problems and he he had had maybe nine ten years of being fine after the drug induced psychosis but when it came back um it knocked the stuffing out of him and unfortunately um he decided he didn't want to live like that and he took his own life mm. um but there'd never been there'd never been any sign of him wanting to do that. He never spoke about it. It wasn't something that was really on our radar. So it was in 2004 when actually not that many people were doing it and not that many people spoke about it. And um, of course it was horrific, you know, and I, I heard someone say before that grief knocks on your door, um, but suicide comes and kicks your door down and comes mm. in and wrecks your home, you know, and that really stuck with me because that's what happened. So mm. after Lar died, I, um, my drinking got worse, but the hangovers got worse and the time in between the drinking got worse. Um, and I got very, very low myself. So I tried to control it and that didn't work. So it was eight years trying to control it, trying everything. I'll drink less. I'll, um, I'll get hypnotized, like everything, you know. Mm. I'll drink beer and have vodka, yeah. wine, that whiskey, yeah. and all yeah. the ways and means. Exactly. And when I was too sick from the cider, trying to drink the beer and, um, you know, going to counselors and all different things and thinking it was because of the grief and different things that had gone on growing up. And, um, Eventually, I ended up at a counsellor because I had really, really bad anxiety and the anxiety was awful and she was in recovery, um, but she knew not to say to me, 
I think you're an alcoholic. She just said to me, you know, a 12 step program would be good for somebody like you. And she kind of talked me around into trying out recovery meetings. Mm. And I thought I'd go along to the recovery meetings and find out how to drink properly <laughs> and that I'd figure out what my <laughs> problems were and what was the biggest problem. And I'd sort it out. And at the first meeting, there was somebody like me who didn't drink every day, who blacked out all of that. And I realized, OK, I have a problem. I need to address it. Because mm. for so, people that are watching, like people's perception of an alcoholic mm-hmm. might be, or they drink every day of the week, mm-hmm. falling around drunk. That's not the case for everybody. Mm-hmm. Some people drink on weekends. Mm-hmm. I'm working with a lady at the moment. Um, she only drinks once a week, but there's so many consequences come from it. Yeah. You know, yeah. and I was the same as you, you know. The, as soon as I picked up a drink or a drug when I was younger, it was never just to have a crack. It was always blackout. Mm-hmm. It was never, it was always about, not, it wasn't about having fun or socialising, it was always about getting completely mm-hmm. plastered. Mm-hmm. wasn't taking one or two volume, it was taking 30. Mm-hmm. wasn't drinking six cans, it was drinking six cans and an egg and a porno. It was always yeah. plastered on the thing. Yeah, I was pretty much the same. I would, um, I would go on a binge for a week or so after being off it for six or seven weeks. Yeah. And I'd go completely mad and end up doing anything, absolutely anything, because anything that came into my head I'd done. And the amounts of drugs that I was putting into my, my body, like, were just, were, were crazy. Um, because it pro- at the time I probably didn't want to, to live, you know, mm-hmm. because of, of, of what was going on in my head. But mm-hmm. yeah, it took, it, 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 there was something there you said earlier on about the drug induced psychosis. Yeah. Can you just tell me it's marvel about that? Cause I'm actually. Sure. Yeah. What, what, how, <clears throat> like for somebody to be, drug-induced through mm-hmm. psychosis, what does it detail? So I'm really glad you asked me yeah. that because it's one of the things I did want to talk about today, mm-hmm. just around like the drink and the drugs and suicide prevention nearly, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so essentially some people, when they take drugs, it can induce and bring on a psychosis. Okay. It can happen to people who are smoking hash. Mm. It can happen to people taking E. Mm. Um, I do think it can actually happen from drink as well. Um, and it's it's basically um, you might hallucinate, like visually uh, auditory. Um, you might know what's reality and what's not reality. And then you might go off to the psychiatric services and get treated for it, mm. but it can trigger, um, it can trigger other mental issues for you. So, do you know, like we often hear of horror stories of, oh, he took a trip and he never yeah. came around. Yeah. That's kind of what it's like. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's like the, but do you know, like, mm. is it? There's loads of people take drugs and they don't get that. So the people that get have psychosis at it. Are they like uh, vulnerable to it, or is underlying that they may never have discovered it? Only the fact that they take a drug it comes to the surface. Are I'm they... not a hundred percent sure. I, mm. I have I I've always thought of it that like you might be predisposed to it, mm. and you know something can trigger it. Mm. Um, I'm not a hundred percent sure. Yeah, because if you think mm. if you have ten people in a room, ten people are smoking weed. Mm. Um, one of them gets psychosis. Nine I, of them are okay. I definitely yeah. picked her a few times in my own addiction. Where I definitely felt, yeah, like that. Yeah, oh. or the DTs with the oh. the alcohol. Yeah. Like, I mean, Just, that's why I never did really too many drugs because I was always afraid that I would be that person that mm. would go mm. off and not come back. You know. Yeah. Yeah. But, but one one kind of episode or a couple yeah. of episodes. Remember um, the head chop stuff. Remember the, yeah. the blow. Yeah, yeah. That stuff used to drive me so yeah. paranoid, and you know, like that was the closest thing. But I've always managed to come around from it once yeah. I sobered up and a bit of sobriety. Some people yeah. like they unleash they un, you know, unleash that beast or wake up that that beast that yeah. doesn't go back to sleep, and that was the case for your brother. Mm-hmm. It was, yeah, and he was fine in between for many years, but then it obviously triggered something in him, and he had was having hallucinations and stuff like that again. And I know from working, I worked as a social worker in the Department of Psychiatry in uh, Kilkenny. And um, was it Spice that was around a while ago? Spice, Spice, yeah. um, People were coming in really, really mentally unwell after taking that. Like really, really mentally unwell. You know, um, I think there's certain drugs as well that can just be worse and just mess with the mind, you know. 
that's why that's, that's why I suppose the uh, legalising marijuana probably makes a lot of sense because you know marijuana in and of itself mm-hmm. while not harmless of course to so some people are going but it's a lot less harmful yeah. than in synthetic cannabinoids like spice mm. and head chop stuff that is you don't know what's in it is made in a the lab there's no regulation yeah. that kind of drives people around the bend doesn't it yeah yeah for sure yeah another I've thing i've seen a few videos all right with yeah. people actually on that drug and it actually is scary. It um, is. You know, I'd seen a guy, I was on the way home from work one day and I see this guy just driving through the city and, and, and during the day and, and um, I think it was my brother was in the van with me at the time and uh, we see this fella sitting down in the footpath in the middle of the road, just the side of the road, he'd no socks on and no nothing and uh, he was all over the shop. I was saying, fuck it, and, said, and then he told Tommy, said, turn around, he said, He's probably on that spice stuff. It's actually big around the place at the moment. I said, really? I went home and I looked at a few videos. And there was a few videos of lads taking it inside in prison cells in, yeah, in England. the prisons in England, mm. yeah. And uh, it, it's scary, you know. Taking a number it's, of people to yeah. be able to even, not restrain, but even if they do damage themselves, to yeah. actually be able to help them, help themselves. Like, it's just yeah. crazy stuff. You can't, def- like... No, you cannot defend yourself in a situation mm. if you're on that drug. Mm. I've seen another video where these two guys are in, in a street. It might be five, six o'clock in the morning and there's people around them. The two of them are just, they can't even move. Like, and they're mm. just like that on the floor. And I said, if, if they ever came across somebody that they were arguing or something like that, mm. they can't even turn on the fight or fly mode where they'd run or whatever. Yeah. They're just dead, like yeah. They're just yeah. you're completely incapacitated. Yeah. But you know, from um, a documentary there about the about the, the spice use in English prisons, um, they were saying that because you're out of it for so long, you know what's going on. It just kills time. It just you know helps pass the time. Isn't that desperate? Yeah. I know. Like yeah. what well, your life is in such a way that you're actually. Mm. But look, we digress. We've a habit of digressing yeah. here yeah. To, yeah. And, yeah. and the yeah. podcast, but uh, yeah. that's okay too. <laughs> but uh, we come back so. You were in the height of addiction. Your mm-hmm. brother died tragically mm-hmm. uh, from suicide. Then the addiction got worse for you. Mm-hmm. And how did it come to a head? It came to a head um, because I myself became suicidal. And it really scared me. It really scared me. Um, I knew from my own training, which is the weirdest thing, you know, I've done um, suicide first aid. I've done all these things and um, trained as a social worker but yet there I was feeling these feelings. And um, what happened was when I was drinking a couple of times, I made plans for myself. And I knew from my training that when someone starts making a plan, that's when it gets really, really serious, mm. you know. Um, and it is a bit of a myth that people who talk about suicide aren't going to do it. That's actually an invitation to looking for help. Yeah. Um, but anyway, that's that's a little bit different. But um I was scared because I was becoming suicidal when I was hungover um, because I hadn't resolved any of the grief around Lar. You know, Lar had been like a dad to me. He was always there for me. When anything happened, I turned to him. So then when the worst thing happened, he wasn't there. Mm. So for me, it felt like a double whammy. And I was just trying to get on with it. I went back to college to train as a social worker. I was doing all these things. I was working as well. Um, and then I'd have my big blowout at the weekend and get really, really blacked out. And then the next day I started to feel suicidal. So um, I eventually told the counsellor because I was scared, you know, um, and the people living with me uh, were moving out and just I was very alone. You know, my family... I had moved out at 19 at this stage. I was at my early 30s. I didn't drink around them, you know, and the one in the family that I did drink around, you should say, you know, Lizzie, you need to end the love affair with cider, you know, but the rest of them, I avoided it because I knew once I started, I wouldn't stop. So my family didn't know I had a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> I had met a lovely man and I ditched him because he didn't drink. Um, I was going to emigrate um, you know, so I was very, I was very alone with it all. Um, so it was kind of last chance to lean go and get some help. So I went and I got the help and like that, I went to the, um, the meeting and started to identify mm. and did not want to identify, mm. you know, spent a year crying <laughs> because I identified and it really just 
how am I going to like myself if I have this problem kind of thing? And, um, but eventually after a year, I admitted it and everything got so much better. Didn't get perfect. It didn't get easy. Everything that I had pushed down over the years, you know, had to come up and be resolved. Um, the grief, but it got much better, you know, it got much better. And, um, a good few years into recovery, I started writing about it all. And mm. that's how I ended up actually with the book. I probably wrote double the book mm. um, and then took a lot out and added a bit of makey-uppy in there. Mm. Um, but yeah, that's how it ended up for me, yeah. It's amazing, like, when, you, you know, when you're in a, a tough situation in your life, um, when you just kind of accept, mm. like, like they say in recovery, you surrender. Mm. And you finally come, like, you... We tried vodka, like I speak for us all here. We tried vodka, that didn't work. We tried whiskey, that didn't work. We tried beer, we tried Xanax, we tried Valium, cocaine, heroin. In the end, when you exhaust every avenue and then you just accept that, you know what, it doesn't matter what I take, even if it's a giant, mm-hmm. always ends up with me feeling suicidal. It always ends up with me going yes. to court. Yes. And But it takes a lot of hardship to get to that place. Mm-hmm. But even in outside of addiction... If you're in a shitty situation in your life or there's shitty circumstances in your life, if you just accept that this is how it is, yeah. either accept it and move on or take action on it. And we talk about this with him, you know, yes. something that it, it's empowering as well, isn't it? Yeah. And I've heard people say before, you know, acceptance is the answer to everything. And also that's actually what mindfulness and meditation is. It's watching what the thoughts and the feelings are, but just accepting them without judgment. So whatever's happening, whatever feelings coming up, you see it all, but you just don't judge it. You just accept it. And then it can just flow by like a cloud in the sky, as they say, in all the mindfulness and the meditation stuff. Mm. So for me, that's the major thing, the surrender every single day, every a million times a day. You just have to keep surrendering to what is. And then you do end up with a better life. Sounds very simple. It's not. Mm. I know. I know. It takes time for that to work, doesn't it? Yes. You have to overcome for the mindfulness I, I practiced when I was inside mm-hmm. my prison cell. Um, and I don't want to name the book, and I might have mentioned this before, but this was a very, very important thing for me, and I wouldn't like to see anybody go down that route either. Mm-hmm. But it was a book, a mindfulness book anyway, mm-hmm. and they were teaching me to become cautious, curious for my thoughts. I was completely suicidal and depressed at the time. Mm-hmm. Okay? Mm-hmm. And this audiobook was telling me to start being mindful of my thoughts. My thoughts were telling me I was bad. Mm. Kill yourself. Do you know what I'm saying? There's something wrong here. Like, you know, but I had no awareness at the time. I was, I was in early recovery. I was, mm-hmm. it was my first, as you said earlier, all the trauma started to come up. All that shit started coming up yeah. and there was fear and shame and guilt. But it's very, very, you have to be very, very careful with mindfulness as well about, you know, you in early recovery. Yes, you really do. And I'm so glad you said mm. that because the, the the person who supported me in early recovery used to say, you know, sometimes um, you need a mindful walk mm. or you need a mindful punching the bed or, you, you know, um, you, it's not always about just People can use it to detach as well. It can go one way or the other. So some people can use it to detach from all their feelings. And it's another way of numbing. And they're just not facing anything and they're just going around numb. And therefore, they're also not enjoying the good. Mm. Um, And then you have the delving in too deep, which I'm so glad you said that because for early recovery, it's not necessarily meditation. I don't think I think mindfulness is the, you know, meditation is the, you probably know this, but it's the formal practice of mindfulness. So I think being mindful at the beginning of recovery is better than meditation personally. Just being aware of how you're feeling, you know, they say people, place and things. What impact am I having on people, place and things? And what impact are they having on me? Um, And an awful lot of the the work that I do and that I did with the teenagers who are... um, when I was working with teenagers in recovery was about that, about mindfulness and just taking that beat. How do I feel now? what's happening um, but not necessarily sitting there for hours and going into some sort of zone that's not going to be good for you. Mm. Do you think you want to be kind of, you want to kind of have some bit of stable recovery behind you mm-hmm. before you start going deep like that, you not know, deep into traumas and deep into the sort of stuff? Yeah. Because you unearth stuff there when you're not ready to unearth it mm-hmm. and it might drive you back into the alcohol. For sure and also 
I don't think meditation and mindfulness is the place for it yeah. going into any of that. I really don't. I think it's a, a gentle way of being and experiencing the world. So um, the way I teach it for children is through the five senses. I, I think I was telling you I have a kid's book coming out as well, and it teaches mindfulness and gratitude. And it looks at the five senses. What do I see, hear, taste, smell and feel? That's very different from what am I feeling right now and why? And let's analyze it. Mm. You know, it just brings you into the moment. So what do I feel right now? I feel the chair, yeah. you know, um, what do I see? You know, it's it's about being where you are right then, which can actually help you with the anxiety if trauma is coming up for you, yeah. if that mm. makes sense. Yeah. You know? Because as Eckhart Tolle says, like, no problem can exist in the present. Yeah. And it's true, isn't it? Yeah. There are all the stuff that happened in the past that might happen in the future, but in this moment... I'm sitting here, I'm on a chair, I'm in good company, I'm yeah. recording a podcast, I'm having a good conversation, yeah. I'm fine. I'm not worrying about any financial issues or any personal issues, everything is okay. No. Exactly. It? It's taking it, it helps you to do life a minute at a time, which you can apply to recovery, which I applied to grief when I was in the depths of grief. Um, you can apply for your mental health, you know, just being present in the moment. And if it isn't a great moment, knowing that moment's going to pass and then you do the next moment. Mm. Um, but mm. yeah, definitely not for going delving in. No. Um, I think people need professional support for that personally. Uh, and and when when people say become present in, in the know it's it's very easily said than done mm-hmm. you know because a lot of people actually don't even know what present moment is mm-hmm. are are being mindful are surrendering into the present moment mm-hmm. you know because they've probably never even done meditation or anything like that before and they don't know what it's actually like to sit in the present moment yeah. you know and it's you have to really watch the language you're 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 talking about i i try to anyway when i speak it to people mm. in early recovery i i just tell them to surrender and it's another way of just saying yeah. being the present moment it's just mm. just feel whatever's going on for you and, and i know your head is probably going to come at you as well at the same time definitely but just try to breathe mm-hmm. and just feel whatever emotion is inside here mm-hmm. and just try to sit with it I know your head is probably going to give you a lot of thoughts because it might be shame and your head is bringing up shameful situations mm-hmm. from past do you know to reaffirm this feeling mm-hmm. that you're having and just feel it do you know and it, 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 for me that's what worked for me in the end yeah. but like you spoke earlier there about the different ways of of, of um, the mindfulness I done both ways you done I became the fella that became so mindful I wasn't even able to feel <laughs> right <laughs> I've I, seen a yeah. few people love that I was like yeah. that yeah. so everything yeah. something came up it was gone it, yeah. the minute it come up I I yeah. used my mindful it was practice. another way of escape I, yeah. it was gone it was gone and then I said one second I said how is that being mindful of <laughs> I was, I'm not surrendering into nothing I mean, the minute something comes up it's gone because I, I, I really 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 thoroughly worked on the, the mindfulness in the room minute half minute gone you turned mindfulness into an addiction yeah. <laughs> it actually did and it worked it's true. Oh, it worked it's it worked true. it was nothing I was actually great after mm. it but I didn't deal with any trauma yeah. I didn't deal with any situations from my past yeah. and I still had to deal with all that I had to feel it and surrender into it you know, and there was the other side of it then where I was just kind of completely all over the place because I was, as I said, the audio was saying, oh, just just watch your thoughts like they're a stream. I was saying, watch my thoughts. I, was, I, was, <laughs> I couldn't fall. Yeah. I was mad like yeah. at the time. But yeah, I can. I think completely. early recovery, we're very vulnerable and people yeah. are very vulnerable in early recovery, as I said, whether it's from grief or addiction or mental health and I think a number of different things are really useful, but trying to just use one like mindfulness or like mm. creative writing or whatever it might be um, is not the road to go down, especially if you have an addictive personality. Mm. Um, you know, a combination of things. Yeah. yeah. Do you know when you were getting sober that time, mm-hmm. was it just through the 12 steps or did you do residential treatment as well or psychotherapy or um, I did the 12 steps and I did, at the beginning, I did 90 meetings in 90 days. Yeah. Um, and then I got some outside help as well from a counsellor who was actually in recovery. 
um, which was brilliant. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Ninety means and ninety days is a big commitment, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it Do was. Do you want to explain that for people that don't go to the rooms? What what that actually means and entails? Yeah, yeah. I suppose um, I landed into my first meeting after the counsellor talked me into it without using the word alcoholic because she knew I would have ran a mile. Mm. So I thought I was going into the meeting to find out, as I said, um, how I how I drink normal. And at that first meeting, everything I heard told me, you have a serious problem. So I then was quite afraid because I didn't want to drink again. And my last drinking had been blackout. It had been feeling suicidal. So they were talking in the meetings about, okay, you didn't go to treatment. Instead of going into a treatment centre, what you can do is you can commit to coming to the meetings for 90 days. So over the course of 90 days, do a meeting a day. Um, and luckily enough, the way I was working at the time, I was able to do that. Um, and a little while in, then you got I got a few little responsibilities and I got people helping me. And um, by the time the 90 days was up, I had a, a foundation of a few people that I could call and talk to who had been through and were out the other side of the early days mm. who could help me then. You mentioned sorry, James. You mentioned something else as well, um, which I thought was very important as well, um, for people that find A or N A or J or whatever it may be, Mm -hmm. is the the counselling. I think Mm -hmm. the counselling is seeing a psychotherapist or a Mm counsellor is a massive part of any form of recovery, because it allows people to talk about the actual the why. The way we drank, the way we drugged, mm-hmm. the way we gambled, the way we overeat, all these different things. And to understand why we did all these things and yeah. why we acted like this. And I think that's very, very important for anybody listening. Like, is the outside sure. help is critical as well to recovery. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think it was yourself that said it earlier when we were talking about Gabber Mate, mm-hmm. that he talks about, you know, all... Um, the root of addictions often is trauma. Mm -hmm. I think he says it's always trauma. Mm -hmm. Um, So people usually have a lot to deal with. And that trauma doesn't have to be something major. It just has to be traumatic for that person. Mm -hmm. And usually if somebody is numbing that with their addiction, it's going to come back. But also I think addiction is traumatic. So when you're a little while into recovery, for me anyway, when I started to think about, oh my God, like I was so vulnerable and you know, I always say drink made me be who I was and not who I was. I wasn't a bad person, to be honest, when I drank, but I put myself in dangerous situations, you know. Yeah. And um, thinking about that was traumatic, you know, thinking about all the blacking out and uh, um, that I actually have a disease. So I also needed to deal with that with a counsellor. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the, 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 the recovery and the 12 steps is brilliant. I mean, in America, they use it just for there's people going who have no addiction. Mm. You probably know this, that yeah. just go and use it. And um, I know a few people around me who, you know, have learned a few things through me and love it. And my kids learn it by living with me, you know. Um, but definitely it can do so much, but I think more is needed alongside it. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah. You know, one of the best things I, I think I got from uh, doing the 12 steps, among other things, no, but, um, you know, the humility piece. You know, just mm-hmm. to be able to, you know, when you're wrong, just to own it and, and, and mm-hmm. say it. That yeah. helped me in my relationships, it helps me in my employment, mm-hmm. it helps me in all forms of life, just to say, you know what, I was wrong there, let's name it and move on. And yeah. that letting the fest door, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Know, it yeah. just makes you, it gives you the maturity, doesn't it? What it also does as well is it, it, not, it, it takes away some of the egotistical stuff that you have yourself. Mm-hmm. It, it, it kind of tames your ego, mm-hmm. where before... You would have at somebody for saying a certain thing or done a certain thing to mm-hmm. it. You know, if even if you were wrong, mm-hmm. but when you're wrong, you get honest in recovery. You have to get honest because you have to. It's the it, behaviors have to change. You know, it's not. It's not. It's not recovery if it, if the behaviors don't change. You know, you're still living the same life. There's still no peace of mind there, even though you're not picking up the drink or drug. Mm-hmm. The peace of mind comes with the dropping of the behaviours, you know. Um, and for a lot of men, uh, in addiction from to alcohol and drugs and all these different things, like porn would be a massive thing, mm-hmm. you know. Food would be another massive mm-hmm. thing. Gambling would be a massive thing. You know, all these things, like, you can't hold on to one. 
you know, mm. because the yeah. peace of mind is still gone because there might be a, a bed, the other few, two or three, mm. and the one is taking up all this peace, you know. Mm. And as you say, being able to say sorry and realizing, be, becoming self-aware and realizing why, when you're a little while into addiction, oh, okay, I have a new addiction. Even if it's something mm. healthy like running, but you're running every day and you're not doing what you need to do at home or um, being able to own that or being able to apologize. I know for me with my small kids, you know, being able to apologize when I get it yeah. wrong or when I have a moment where I'm not the way I want to be with them, you know, and they've learned now as well. They'll say sorry to each other, mm. you know, and then we just move on. Um, all those little things that I've learned and people respond so well as well. People just want to be respected and appreciated mm. and rightly so. And mm. that's why I'm always, uh, my thing as well with the mindfulness is the gratitude. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there are all things that I've learned in recovery about being grateful. I remember at the beginning, you know, really having to force myself to find a few things to be grateful for because I wasn't used to looking at all the good in my life. Mm. And now genuinely every single day I fill a page with gratitude um, because it makes me feel so happy. But I'm so, where I'm going with this is that leads into all the people around me then because I'm so grateful when my friend is there for me or when my husband does something good. As well as me being able to say sorry, I'm also able to say thank you, do you know, to the people around me and it just builds the relationships because yeah. that's what it's all about. Mm. You know, the opposite of um, addiction is connection mm. and all those things, saying sorry, being thankful, being grateful, being in the moment. Um, as I said, not one or the other, they all make us connected to ourselves and to each other. You know, whereas when we're in addiction, well, I know me anyway, I was so lonely by the end of it and I'd isolated myself, even though I was around people, I wasn't connecting with them. Mm. You know, exactly, um, yeah. And connection is connect, recovery is connection. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's, it's about finding people that you can relate to mm-hmm. and growing with them. You yeah. know, you're where you're not alienated or isolated anymore, caught up in your own head, yeah. where you're on the phone saying, I feel like this today, what's going on? It's okay, that's normal to feel mm-hmm. like that. You're in early recovery, it's okay, yeah. it does get better. Just keep talking about it. But if you don't pick up the phone, you know the consequences of that as well. There's a, there's, yeah. there's a relapse in, in, in not picking up the phone. Yeah. And there's also a bout of depression, mm. you know, and spiraling back down. So it's, it, that's another vital thing, actually, where we're talking about is picking up the phone and speaking to people, other people yeah. in recovery when when you're struggling. And, for you know, sure. Yeah. We're very good for doing people's thinking for them, aren't they? Yeah. Oh, he's too busy. Sure, do you know, I want, mm. I want to ring her because I know she's working today and then we do everybody's thinking. Mm. But where are we left? We're left isolated, aren't yeah. we? Yeah. You know, what was a massive one for me as well and, and I think this is very important to mention. When I did find myself a sponsor at the beginning, mm-hmm. I was so low, you know, uh, and in myself mm. that I didn't want to ring him because I'd I'd do the same to him that my inner I'd I'd upset him mm. and I didn't want to be ringing him because I thought I'd be annoying him and do you know all these different things um and when I see somebody today and I see that they mightn't be well in themselves and they're in early recovery I say that to them I say if you're struggling pick the phone up, it doesn't matter, just pick the phone up and, and ring your sponsor, bring somebody that's close to you, and you won't be wrecking their head. And and they'd say, how did you know I thought like that? Because I know, because I've been there, you know, and that's very important, that kind of relation. It's huge, mm. it's huge, and it's, you know, um, with my book, I was... Um, I was a little bit nervous about putting it out because some of it's based on my experience, not all of it, uh, mm. but some of it, and, you know... Um, the character in it, Lucy, her brother dies by suicide. And, you know, that's that's based on my own experiences. But in the end, I said, I am going to put it there out there because like that, I can get low. And um, I've been able to find ways to come out the other side, but through connecting with other people in the same boat. And for me, it's such an important message that no matter how low you might be, no matter how difficult things seem, no matter how unhappy someone is or how messy it's gotten because of an addiction or because of behaviours, there's always hope. There's always hope. You know, we've been there um, 
And you can come out the other side. There's lots of different ways. And we were talking about psychiatric services and stuff. You know, I know from my professional experience, you know, if you're on a waiting list, there's lots of charities. There's lots of support out there, you know, um, and for people to, to make that call and to reach out to somebody, to anybody, and just to brave saying, I need some help. I'm not feeling okay. Because so many people go through it. I remember in college, um, one of the lecturers saying, put up your hand, anyone who's never contemplated suicide. And nobody put up their hand, you know. Um, mm. So just to for people to understand that at any given time, anyone can be feeling really low or be really struggling with the addiction. And no matter how low you feel you've gone, it is recoverable from, you yeah, know. It's true. It's true. Yeah. Trying to tell us a little bit about your work as a social worker. Yeah. What was that like? Um, so I did a number of different social work jobs. Um, my most recent one, I'm trying to think, was in the mental health services. Um, and my role was when people came in, if they maybe might have been homeless or maybe there was problems around um, needing support for their children while they were in the, the hospital, things like that. Um, or family relationships and family dynamics. I think it's so important for families to be involved with people, you know, in recovery and in the mental health services. So that was my role within that. And as much and all as I enjoyed it, it was a lot of case management. Um, and I didn't get the time with people that I wanted because it's so busy. Because there is so many people attending the psychiatric services through addiction, through mental health problems, whatever it might be. Do you know, just on yeah, that point. Yeah. Like the statutory mental health services in Ireland have a terrible reputation, not mm. for the services provided, mm-hmm. but for the amount of time that you have to wait to get in there. Yeah. Is that frustrating for somebody working in the service? Absolutely, yeah. And for the the waiting lists for people who are coming out of the service, you know, the link between, um, let's say you go into psychiatric services and then you might have a community nurse coming out to you, but you might have to wait a while to get into um, another service that you might need if that if that makes sense yeah, yeah. and that's why I wanted to mention today like you know the charities they are inundated but they're also brilliant like yeah. for holding those kind of spaces for people and getting them through you know um yeah social work I'm there's all the different types so there's the children in care and all of that um, and then there's the therapeutic side of things but anyone who can sustain being a social worker in Ireland I take my hat off to them mm. because it's a really tough job and most people are doing the job of two people mm. because it's so busy and they're all doing fantastic work but for me I suppose I was spoiled from years of working in social care where you got loads of time with the people mm. and I also love the creative and the therapeutic side so I stepped back out of it and went working with people in recovery from addiction as a CE scheme supervisor oh very good yeah, yeah so that was great where was that? So that was down in Waterford. It's called the Progression Programme. And they actually have one of the best ones in the country, I have to say, actually, um, down in Waterford. Well, so that's like an aftercare, is it? Yeah, so they would have been through the treatment centre and then they're living in the sober living. And then when they come out of sober living or while they're still in there towards the end, if they want to start on the Progression Programme. And basically it's a CE scheme, but they get to train in so many different skills, like um, life skills, professional skills. Um, so I was a supervisor, but I also ran a creative writing course while I was there. Mm. Um, and they loved it. They were brilliant and they had so much to express, you know, um, as everybody does. But I think they surprised themselves because you kind of think, oh, I can't write, but anybody can write, you know. Um, mm. So that was brilliant. I absolutely loved that. Um, so hi to everybody down the Progression Programme yeah. in Waterford. Big time. They, big might time. Be, they might watch the podcast. Absolutely. I'm going to mm-hmm. tell them about it because I think they get an awful lot from it. Yeah. Um, and so many of them are just amazing young people, yeah. you know, just ended up in addiction um, and going in and excelling in all these courses that they're doing and going off now with their plans. And I'd be a big fan as well of um, visualisation and the power of intention and the law of attraction and doing vision boards and stuff like that. Mm. And when I worked in a different branch of Ashery in Ashland, um, when we were doing the leaving plans, I used to always get the guys to do a little vision board for themselves. And, you know, I was only saying earlier, people watching the likes of this to see, I, I feel like you guys, what you try to promote is that it's not just surviving in recovery, it's like thriving in recovery. Mm. You know, the, you don't just go through 
the the treatment center or your 90 meetings in your 90 days or your counseling or all the tough stuff to come out the other side and just have a dry existence mm. you know there's so much you can do yeah. um and the back to education that you you guys so that's where a lot of the, the people on the progression program would be heading towards them. They'd be going back to education or going into education for the first time. Um, Sounds like a great project. It's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it really and is. The, educa- the education part of it as well, I think, is very, very important because with education, I found I was able to understand people and words and myself a lot more mm-hmm. because I was able to put words to the way I was felt, the way I thought the way I understood things um, and I thought it was it, it was critical in my own uh, growth was educating myself around uh, vocabulary word it's words and the meaning of words because before that I actually didn't even know what a feeling was I didn't know what anxiety was I didn't know what um, um, emotions were I hadn't Literally, I did not have any idea of what any of that kind of stuff was, you know. And as I progressed then, I tried to learn all these these different words around uh, the way I felt. I started to grow because I was able to attach a feeling to a word. And that's that was very, very important for me. So I like it. And to and be it, able to communicate yeah. it. Yeah. To yeah. be able to communicate To a counsellor. Yeah. Do you know, even yeah. to a counsellor, yeah. they'd be asking me questions and... Sure, I didn't know what they were saying to me. They were asking, mm-hmm. how, how do you feel? And do you feel this word? And I'm sure I didn't know what that feeling mm-hmm. was because I, I never connected to anything like that before. Mm-hmm. Or you think maybe, I know for me, I thought I, everyone felt anxious all the time mm-hmm. when I was a teenager. Yeah. Yeah. It's only looking back yeah. that I'm going, oh, right. Everybody. That wasn't normal. That <laughs> was a massive thing for me yeah. as well growing up. I, I thought everybody thought the way I was. You know, mm-hmm. Trust me, you don't know what. No one wanted to know what was going on inside of my fucking head. But I thought everybody felt like that. Because I thought m- my upbringing and their upbringings, it was just normal for people to think. I didn't realise until later on in recovery and learning about life and people, different people's upbringings that everybody doesn't feel like the way I felt and everybody doesn't think the way I do. It was all down to my influences, my experiences in life and all these different things in childhood and, yeah. you know, and ev- no two people are the same. You know, yeah. No two people are the same. They could be identical twins, mm. but they're not the same. They mm. will act differently. They will, f- they will feel differently. One of them might be confident, one of them might be shy, you know, so it's yeah. so different. You see it in families all the time, don't you? You yeah. know, we grew up in the same house and... And that's why I think it's so important as well that all the prevention are like so prevention work for addiction um with children. So when you were talking there, I was literally picturing like building blocks. You know, kids nowadays um they get taught what their feelings are. And they get taught like that, you know, um, it might be the mindfulness or the gratitude or the um how to behave in a friendship. And all of that stuff builds up their resilience so that when something happens, they're not necessarily going to turn to the drink or the drugs. Mm. Um, And I was in touch there recently with um, minding my mental health um, to psychotherapies. Psychotherapists set it up during the pandemic and they've asked me to run some courses for them. Um, But what they do is they're all about the message of... um, for people in recovery or for anybody, it's about the prevention of getting to that point where you're feeling really, really anxious or really, really depressed by looking at how do I look after myself before I get to that point so that when a stressor hits, um, I've got those tools. Yeah. Because they're seeing like that and like we were saying there in social work, they have huge lists mm. and they're providing fantastic services, mm. but they're all flat out the psychotherapists in Ireland doing the work again of two people, mm. you know. Um, so they're trying to set up now, of OK, what tools can we give people that A, they can use in the meantime, but B, to help them not get to that point. So I love the idea of that for kids as well, you know. Yeah. yeah. Um, 
So I'm going to be doing a few courses for those guys and they're going to have them up on their website um, in the mindfulness and the gratitude and stuff. How did you get into the mindfulness teaching and did you have to do a training and education for that too or is it just something you picked up yourself? Um, a bit of both. So when I went, I went back to college at 29 and I um, was still in active addiction and I was anxious all the time. So they were running um, a meditation course there and I said, I give it a go. Um, and I really liked it. It gave me a bit of peace and it helped with anxiety. Mm. And when I finished in the college, you could go to the Dublin Buddhist Centre um, if you'd done that course. So for a year, while I was trying again to stop drinking, every Tuesday I went to the Dublin Buddhist Centre and learned about Buddhism. And it was really, really interesting. Now, I'm not necessarily a, a Buddhist. I'm just interested in it. Mm. Um, I'm definitely not a Buddhist. I mean, you have to have loads of discipline. Um, so... I did that and then I used to always incorporate that in all the different jobs I was in. Anytime they'd let me teach mindfulness, I would, whether it be with people with disabilities, whether it be with people um, in recovery from um, addictions. So then during the pandemic, I did the professional training to teach um, children and teenagers. So it's mindfulness for wellbeing in schools that I did with the Irish Mindfulness Academy. Um, and I was able to do that online during the, the pandemic. Brilliant. Yeah. That's great. Yeah. That's great because mindfulness is a massive tool to help people to grow yeah. and to surrender. And I keep bringing it back to the word surrender because yeah. that's when my life changed. I surrendered. I stopped yeah. fighting. When I say I stopped fighting, I stopped fighting my Yourself. head. Yeah. You know, yeah. And yeah. like when, when you're somebody like me who has lived a life of complete um, battle, fighting, mm-hmm. growing up, fighting lads in the street, fighting at home. It's ingrained into you to fight something that you don't want, you know. And um, when I just said, I can't do this no more, and then I just surrendered into it, and that's when my life changed. I think one of the best things about mindfulness as well is that it's practical, it's free, mm-hmm. anybody can mm-hmm. access it. It mm-hmm. obviously takes time to mm-hmm. learn, it's not mm-hmm. simple. But there's so many books out there. I'm only learning all this stuff myself lately. Yeah. It was never really, not that I wasn't into it, I never really had an awareness around. Mm. All my education has been academic, you know, yes. and stuff around my professional practice, you know, in, in, yeah. in my work. But it's only in the last few weeks um, we've kind of touched on stuff like this in the podcast and Timmy mm. recommended some books and mm. I'm finding it great, you know, and mm. this is another podcast now where it's come up and like a lot of, Stuff is happening in my life now that's kind of um, bringing me down this road, but I'm finding it very beneficial. I'm eight years in recovery, mm. you know, and mm. um, we'll always be learning, like, you know, yeah. from the cradle to the grave, like, we'll be yeah. learning, you know, we learn from each other. Yeah. This uh, is it, yeah. And even in the education piece that we were talking about there, for those people in uh, Waterford, it doesn't have to be an academic education. Yeah. You can be learning off each other. It can be doing mm. the C scheme. It can be the courses. It can be Going off doing the barber and stuff. The apprenticeships have really come back in. Yeah. Um, it's a big thing now for the apprenticeships with the carpentry, the barbers, all of that. Um, this, as you say, it doesn't have to be three, four years in college. No. You know, for some people it is, but for so many it's not. No, but that worked for mm-hmm. me and Timmy. Worked mm-hmm. for you. Mm-hmm. Can I ask you one question about your education? Actually, what mm-hmm. we're talking about it. When I was in UCC, I was 28, 29, you know, like yourself. Um, mm-hmm. uh, I'm still there at the moment, now I'm 35. But when I was in there at that time, mature student, I used to be looking around at the students, rag week, freshers week, the drinking, <laughs> the partying. And I was thinking, how the fuck do they get through college? But you were actually in addiction in college. How did you meet deadlines and do assignments? <laughs> oh, stop. I know. Like, I managed to do it twice. Like, I did at age 19 and then I went to yeah. age 29. Um, I suppose I did what I always did and I did it at the weekends. Mm. So so you were good Monday to Thursday, I said. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And then for the weekend and then recovering and the anxiety and all of that. However, in the fourth year, so it was a degree and a master's combined, right? Mm. So it was five years in four because you did two placements on two summers. But um, in the final year, I just couldn't afford to work because work as much because there was so much college work. Mm. And I loved the course and I really like I really enjoyed it, you know, and I surprised myself actually how well I did because I always thought I couldn't, you know, um, when I was in school and all of that. But 
in fourth year, I couldn't afford to work that much, so I couldn't afford to drink that much. So then I had the time and the, yeah, you know, but then it was when I just finished, when I started slowing down the drinking that everything started to come up and I realized, okay, yeah. you know. Yeah. It was like, it is a challenge you now yeah. for people, young people, there's so many distractions. I always thought like, if I was in active addiction, I would not manage hell because you know, when you look at look yeah. on your wall and you have your degree or your masters or whatever, yeah. When you think about the amount of hours work you have to put into getting yeah. that certificate, the amount of hours in the library, the amount of yeah. essays you had to write, the amount of, like, this is just so hard to do, mm-hmm. and it is a great achievement. But I often say, like, how much harder does it have to be if you're in drinking, yeah. you know what I mean? I think, though, they're probably not doing it in addiction. So they yeah. have their first and second year of partying and going to classes, and then in third and fourth year, they're, they're able to curb it. And knuckle down. And in fourth year, I actually went the other extreme of addiction and I isolated myself. Yeah. You know, so mm-hmm. I got it done. <laughs> so I'm going to plug your book. Brilliant. Thank Put you. The camera on me there, Ron. <laughs> the Lotus and the Tiger. I'd say you're very proud of it. I am, yeah, yeah. yeah you yeah. should be too. Scrap book. Thank you. And we're going to give away this copy. Brilliant. But um, it's, it's loosely based on your own story. Yeah, yeah. Um, some of it, yeah. And some of it we spoke about, loads of it we didn't. Yes. So to keep people intrigued. Absolutely. Um, but it's a great book. And you have another one on the way. I have a kid's one on the way in September. Uh, it's called Joy's Playground and it teaches through Joy goes off on an adventure with some animals and they learn about mindfulness, gratitude and self-belief through their little their little adventure. Yeah. Um, the handy one for me, so I have to learn mindfulness. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I wanted to... to I know, I know. It is yeah. sometimes the best way to learn is just as a child. Yeah, it's and just... And pick up the, the the simplest... You'll think this is probably... I don't know. But when I was learning stuff on YouTube, I could go into the the childhood learning section where they teach you... They teach childs different things about uh, the atom... Do you yeah, know, the atom yeah. in science, where they're teaching a child, and I understand it a lot easier. But that's than what we need to do. Go yeah. back to the beginning. And it yeah. was actually um, the professor, Robbie Gilligan, in Trinity, is doing a forward for that children's book for me. And when he wrote the forward, because he's all into resilience, and these are resilience tools, you know, to support kids. And he actually wrote in the forward, um, this is a great book for children and their parents. Yeah, because it's so simple, and how else can you learn it if you don't know? Then from the beginning. And you when's know? that book out? So that's out in September. September, you Excellent. might keep yeah. us updated. And Absolutely, yeah. I'll send you down like a copy. I'd yeah. like to buy that and get it and go over with my own kids. Yeah, lovely. Yeah. George, no, tell me go where. Well, it's it's only a story, so they don't even know yeah. they're learning it. Yeah, yeah. you know. That's oh, she's yeah. But Jay likes being told stories still and. Lovely. He's still, he's still a baby, really, ah. in his mammy's eyes, anyway. Yeah, and um, we'll give, we'll actually purchase a good few copies, and we give them to some of the charities here. You know, I have a few books there for the hub, the family Lovely. hub, and the Western. And Ward. I'll send some down as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and you know, the more people that get it, the better. Yeah. You know, and um, I hope you enjoyed coming on the podcast. Absolutely, mm. it's so nice thanks to be here, me. and thanks for Thank having me. Thank you very me. much for coming yeah. on and um, sharing your experience and telling us a little bit about what you do and. It's great for me and James to really sit down with people that are really doing their own thing and inspiring people and and growing as well at the same time and yeah. it's it's just great, isn't it? Yeah, it's and just, this this, this came about because of an interaction on Instagram. Yeah, and I know like we get uh, quite a few people you not know, contact us on Instagram, but we can't bring everybody on the podcast. You know, mm. if we're not inviting people on the podcast, it's not because we don't like them or we don't think their story is valid and we've there's loads of other variables at play yeah. trying to find the right guest at the right time and not to follow up Absolutely. two stories one that you know there's yeah. all yeah. these other things you know but that's not to say like if you if you if you have a good story you're in a good place to tell it just drop us a line and, and we'll put it on a short list at least you know yeah. like this didn't happen overnight this has this been a few months mm-hmm. in the making you know mm-hmm. so i know people kind of contact us say oh here's my story can i come on it's not that we don't value your story, you know, there's just a sure, lot of other of things that play, you know. Yeah, yeah. But um, I really enjoy talking to you. You've got a lovely energy and you've oh, got a, you. an even nicer book. <laughs> so uh, best thanks, of luck guys. with it. And um, thanks, everybody, for watching the podcast. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, guys. Uh, thanks, Rowan, for uh, doing the whole bit of production again. And we see everybody again. This is our last podcast, actually, before we record our live gig. 
Oh, exciting. Outdoors next Saturday. Mm-hmm. And then we've got... Um, so we're not recording anymore here until September. So you're a nice I podcast. I made it to the comfy chair just in yeah. time. Yeah, it's a great <laughs> podcast to finish. Aww. We had to take that window out to get the chair and it couldn't come in the door. We'll resume this conversation <laughs> afterwards. I'll see you later, man. Thanks. <laughs> Hi, everybody. Thanks for listening to the podcast. Uh, don't forget to like and subscribe. And don't forget to head over to the Patreon if you'd like to help us. Thanks again. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.